this is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Ambasic Podcast. Today we're going to be doing something completely different. This episode is what I'm going to call Anatomy of Resuscitation. What I will do is walk you through a case that I had recently of a really sick patient and explain some of my thought processes while I was resuscitating the patient. Before we go any further, let me explain that I got the patient's explicit permission to talk about her case for this podcast. She was very eager for others to learn about what she went through and truly wants to pay it forward. Of course, I won't disclose any of her identifying details, but I just want to make it clear that the patient gave me her permission to talk about her case. Also, I want to say that I am no expert in resuscitation. There are a few points where I could have done better, and I'll talk about those areas so we can all learn from it. In this podcast, we'll talk about some pretty advanced topics in resuscitation, but I think anyone in EM can benefit from thinking through this case and seeing how it was run. With all that being said, let's get started. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the Foods, Opinions, Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. So here's the case. I was working at a community hospital without any resident coverage. Out of nowhere, one of the nurses said, we need some help in bed three. Whenever you hear an ED nurse say this, you need to run to the bedside because there's probably a really sick patient. So the patient is a 32-year-old female who has to be lifted onto the ED stretcher. The only information I had was that she was altered and hypotensive at triage and has had two weeks worth of intermittent vaginal bleeding. Her vital signs are a BP of 70 over 40, heart rate in the 120s, and a pulse ox of 100% on room air. As far as her exam, when I go to talk with the patient, she is definitely altered and ill-appearing. She can answer in one or two word sentences, but she immediately drifts off when you stop talking to her. She's protecting her airway. Her heart and lungs are normal except for tachycardia. I did notice that her conjunctiva were extremely pale. Her abdomen is diffusely tender, with no rebound, guardian, or peritoneal signs, but it's hard to get a good exam due to her mental status. On her external vaginal exam, there is no gross bleeding, and her back is normal with no gross blood on the rectal exam. While I was examining the patient, the nurses were working on getting IV access. In a patient who is as sick as this, you want to have at least two large bore peripheral IVs. I will gladly take an 18-gauge IV, but if you can get bigger IVs than that, then go for it. However, don't waste a ton of time getting IV access. If you can't secure IV access within two minutes or three attempts in a critically ill patient, don't hesitate to place an intraosseous line. While the nurses were getting the IV line secured and running a fluid bolus, I got the ultrasound machine. Ultrasound can be an incredibly useful tool in critically ill patients, and this patient proved why this is the case. I went right for the FAST exam because I was concerned that the patient's vaginal bleeding could have been causing the hypotension. I put the probe on the right upper quadrant, and I was immediately concerned that there was free fluid in Morrison's pouch, but it wasn't a slam dunk. That all changed when I moved to the suprapubic view. When I did this view, I found a ton of free fluid. Her uterus was basically floating in free fluid. I then did a transvaginal ultrasound and found an empty uterus with the same free fluid. Let's stop for a second and take stock in the situation. You have a female of childbearing age who is tachycardic, hypotensive, and has free fluid on her fast exam. However, there was only scant blood on the transvaginal ultrasound probe when I did the exam. The point of care HCG is being done, but it will still take a few minutes to be completed. However, the patient was able to tell me that she had a normal period less than one month ago. So take a second, stop and think, what's your next move here? 
Let me give you a few seconds to think through your management plan, then I'll present a few options. So I think you have a few options here. You can wait for the HCG before making a move. You can also choose to take the patient's airway now. You could also rush a patient to CT as well if you aren't convinced that this is a ruptured atopic. The other thing to consider, do you hang more fluids or do you go straight for blood products? So here's what happened with the patient. I was not convinced that this was an atopic pregnancy. It just didn't seem to fit. I made the decision that we needed a stat CT of the abdomen and pelvis and to hang emergency release blood. At this time, I was worried that the patient had something else going on, like a large ruptured hemorrhagic ovarian cyst, or maybe this was actually a trauma case and this was a ruptured spleen or anything else that could cause blood in the abdomen. For this patient, I called ahead to the scanner and told them to clear the table and told them we were bringing the patient over right away. In cases like these, be proactive and start moving towards the CT scanner. Don't wait for someone to give you the okay. As far as the patient's airway was concerned, I felt the patient was sufficiently protecting her airway and that we could make it to CT for some answers. However, I still took the airway equipment and the RSI kit to CT, and I went with the patient myself. It is super important that you never let a patient this sick go to the CT scanner without a provider. Just as we were leaving for the CT scanner, one of my colleagues looked her up in the computer and found that she had a negative HCG the day before in clinic. So that took a topic off the table for me. And in the end, her repeat HCG was negative as well. Before we left for the scanner, I also had general surgery and OBGYN paged. Even though her HCG was negative, I knew that OBGYN was in-house while general surgery was on call from home. I didn't hear back from them until I was back from the scanner, but the important thing was that I called early for the consultants who may be able to help me with a super sick patient. The patient did well in the CT scanner and was even able to get a contrasted scan without any problems. This is an important teaching point. In this patient, we didn't have a chemistry panel back or even an HCG because we were in the scanner in less than five minutes after she arrived. When the CT tech asked, I made it clear that she was critically ill and we needed contrast despite not having a definitive HCG or a chemistry panel back. I was concerned that if we did not use contrast, we could possibly miss the chance to figure out why she was hypotensive. As the scan was done, I saw that she had lots of material in her stomach and a massive amount of free fluid in her pelvis. As she was in the scanner, the patient got her first unit of emergency release blood. We brought the patient back to the ED, and within a few minutes, the patient showed us why she was hypotensive. She proceeded to vomit a large amount of bright red blood. When I saw this, I called for the massive transfusion protocol to be activated. I called for a type and cross of 8 units of blood and to start bringing FFP and platelets to the ED. We continued the resuscitation with the packed red blood cells that we had for the emergency release blood, and this helped stabilize her a little bit. After 3 units of packed RBCs, the platelets arrived, so we ran those. The FFP still had to be thawed. At this time, the patient was actually doing a lot better, and was more awake and talking to me. She was able to tell me that she came in because she had been vomiting bright red blood at home. This would have been great to know before we went down the CT pathway, but you have to adapt to incomplete information in emergency medicine. I then came to find out that her fiancé was in the waiting room, and he had brought her into the ED. This was the first thing I could have done better during the resuscitation. I should have found out who brought her in and talked to them. In the rush to get the patient initially stabilized, 
the fiancé was shooed away to the waiting room, and I didn't realize he was available to give some history. If I had known that the patient had massive hematosis at home, I probably would not have taken her CT without her airway secured, and I wouldn't have called an OBGYN. Around this time, the patient was doing a little better, and her labs started trickling back. The first thing I was called on was a hemoglobin of 3.4. In looking back through the patient's chart, she had been seen the day before in a primary care clinic for vague back pain and dizziness, and her hemoglobin then was 6.8. However, the phone number in her medical record was not correct, and despite some great efforts, she couldn't be tracked down. When I found out that her hemoglobin was 3.4, and she was continuing to vomit blood, I proceeded to continue her resuscitation with more blood products in a 1 to 1 to 1 ratio of packed red blood cells, FFP, and platelets. The patient got 3 units of packed red blood cells and a 6 pack of platelets before she got any FFP since it had to be thawed, but in the end, she received 5 units of packed red cells, 5 units of FFP, and that one 6 pack of platelets. By this time, OBGYN and general surgery had both arrived. The CT was read as showing esophageal varices, and the free fluid in her pelvis was actually ascites. The patient actually did not have a history of alcoholism or liver failure, and as of today, the cause of her varices is still being worked up. Her LFTs and coags were normal, as were the rest of her labs besides her hemoglobin. While the OBGYN and general surgeon were not able to help me with this patient, I don't regret calling them both in, because if this had gone differently, and this was a ruptured ovarian cyst or a ruptured spleen, she would have needed the OR immediately. Now there is the matter of getting her to another hospital. The hospital I was working at did not have GI coverage, so the patient needed to be transferred. Helicopters were down due to weather, so she would have to go by ground. At this point, the patient was awake and talking to me with the systolic in the 140s. We had great peripheral and even central access that was placed by my colleague. We needed to take her airway for the ride over to the other hospital as a precaution, so we began to set up for that. Here's where the next dilemma comes in. This is a patient who was awake and talking, but clearly is in compensated hemorrhagic shock. A few months before, I had been to the SMAC conference in Sydney, Australia, where I heard Scott Weingart talk about innovating patients in shock. Fortunately, this lecture was just published on the MCRIP podcast a few days ago, so make sure to listen to it. There is now an increasing literature base showing that normal RSI doses of any sedative medications, including ketamine, can cause circulatory collapse in those patients who have shock. This may be paused for a second to consider my options for intubation. While I was considering all my options, I put the patient on oxygen via high-flow non-rebreather mask, cranked all the way up to 30 to 60 liters per minute, and nasal cannula at 15 liters per minute to properly pre-oxygenate the patient. In his lecture at the SMAC conference, Scott advocated for a small dose of sedatives and a large dose of paralytics. For ketamine, he recommended as small as 0.25 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, where a normal dose for RSI would be 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram. However, using such a small dose of ketamine made me nervous that the patient would remember the intubation attempt, and that would be horrible, especially since she was partly resuscitated at this point. If the patient had still been obtunded and hypotensive in the 70s, I wouldn't have hesitated to use the 0.3 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine and hope for the best, but this patient was awake and talking to me. So here's what I decided to do. I estimated the patient's weight to be somewhere around 70 kilograms. 
I had the nurse draw up 100 milligrams of ketamine in the syringe, but I didn't give that entire dose. If I did the shock dose of 0.3 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine, that would have only been 20 milligrams, which is a very small dose. I decided to double that dose to 40 milligrams initially, which is 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Once I had all the equipment set up, I had the nurse push that 40 milligrams very slowly, pausing after 20 milligrams to see if it had any effect. At 40 milligrams, the patient was still responding a little bit, so I asked for another 20 milligrams of ketamine. The nurse started pushing the additional dose slowly. However, at 50 milligrams total dose, the patient dissociated fully. Her eyes had nystagmus, and she was not responding anymore to stimuli. So this was a final dose of about 0.7 milligrams per kilogram, which is half of what I would usually use for induction. I usually use about 1.5 milligrams per kilogram when I use ketamine for RSI. During the intubation attempt, I also had a syringe of phenylephrine as a push-dose presser, ready to go if the patient dropped her blood pressure, but that never happened. After the ketamine went in, I did a large dose of rocuronium at 100 milligrams, or about 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. I waited 60 seconds and then attempted the airway. I was able to get a good view with DL, but had difficulty passing a 7.5 tube since the patient was a smaller female. During the attempt, she did have some blood passively regurgitated into her oral pharynx that obscured my view temporarily. At this point, I knew that I had a good view, so I decided to pass the bougie into the trachea, and then I slid a 7.0 ET tube over it. I checked tube placement with end tidal CO2 and breath sounds, and they were all good. Since I had pre-oxygenated the patient with high-flow oxygen via both a non-rebreather and a nasal cannula, she never dropped her sats during the intubation attempt, even though it took me a few tries to get the tube in. So here's where I could have done two things better. After the patient was dissociated from the ketamine, I could have dropped an OG tube and sucked out the blood in her stomach, and I could have also had her sitting up more. While I was doing the tube, the head of the bed was only at about a 10 or 15 degree angle. I am sure that if I had the patient sitting up higher and would have placed an OG tube prior to the intubation attempt, I wouldn't have had any problem with blood in the oropharynx. Once we had the tube secured, the ambulance crew arrived and we carefully packaged the patient for transport. Since this was towards the end of my shift, I took a few minutes and I was able to dispo of my other patients, so I actually rode with the patient to the other hospital to support the medics and my nurses that went with her. During transport, the patient did great. She ended up getting her fourth and fifth units of FFP during transport and did require some sedation and route to keep her comfortable. Here's my final mistake, and it's one anyone can make. Once a patient was in the bed in the ICU, I realized that she had never gotten a chest x-ray after the invasion. I felt like a complete moron, and I felt like this was such a rookie mistake. This goes to show you that it's important to always think about what else the patient needs before you move them. Usually the nurses and respiratory therapists are very good about reminding us to order the post-intubation chest x-ray, but in this patient, it just slipped through the cracks. When the chest x-ray was shot at the receiving hospital, sure enough, the tube was just barely at the patient's clavicles and needed to be advanced. This never presented a problem, but I'm still kicking myself over forgetting this simple thing. The patient did great overnight in the ICU. Her repeat hemoglobin six hours later went from 3.4 to 8.4, so she got just the right amount of blood products. She didn't have any problems with volume overload and was extubated the next day awake and alert. 
While she was still intubated, she had the varices banded by GI and did require two more units of packed red blood cells when her hemoglobin dipped post-procedure. As I said before, the cause of her varices is still being worked up. So let's wrap this up by reviewing a few key learning points. First, always use ultrasound to evaluate your critically ill patients. In this patient, it led to the early and aggressive use of blood products before we knew what was going on. Don't waste a lot of time on IV access if the patient is critically ill. Don't hesitate to place an IO if IV access fails. Remember to always get as much history as you can from the person that brought the patient in. We would have gone down a completely different path had we known up front about the hematensis from the get-go. Don't wait for the CT scanner to be available to bring critically ill patients over. Have your airway and resuscitation equipment with you, call to clear the scanner table, and take the patient over yourself. Call your consultants early and be honest with them. Tell them that you have a sick patient, and even though you don't know what is going on yet, they may need the OR and you need their help. With massive transfusion, aim for a 1 to 1 to 1 ratio of PRBCs, plasma, and platelets. In shock patients, cut down the dose of your sedatives and give a larger dose of paralytics. Normal RSI doses of sedatives can cause circulatory collapse in shocked patients, even ketamine. Paralytics need a higher dose to work in shock patients due to decreased perfusion. If you have a patient with a massive GI bleed, give them ketamine, drop an OG tube, and sit them up to be intubated to at least 30 degrees. Finally, don't forget the simple things like the post-intubation chest x-ray. Try to always take a step back and reevaluate every step of the way to figure out what you're missing. That's all I have for this episode. I hope you found this useful as a way of getting an inside look at the thinking behind what we do when resuscitating critically ill patients. I know that this was way more advanced than the talks I usually do, but I hope it gives the beginners out there an introduction into how to think about critically ill patients and how you, what you need to do to make things happen. If you think I should have done something differently, or you just want to comment on the post, please post a comment on the blog and get a conversation going. Before I sign off, I'd like to thank the patient for graciously allowing me to talk about her case in this forum, and I would also like to thank the nurses, medics, and my colleagues who were on shift that night who really came together to give excellent care to one of the sickest patients I have ever seen. You know who you are, and I thank you for all of your help. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the EM Basic Podcast, signing off.